What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Tuesday, February 28, 2023. It's about 3.30 in the afternoon here on the East Coast of the United States. Phil Giraldi uh, joins us now. Um, Phil, you have a great uh, article out. I love all of your work, of course, but you have a great article out aggressively challenging the, here's how I'll describe it, the mindset behind American uh, foreign policy. But before I, um, I get to it, I want to talk about the work of somebody you and I know and admire, and that's Cy Hirsch. Uh, do you have any more thoughts or ideas about the uh, government's inability effectively to refute Hirsch? And the flip side of that coin is the media's utter silence on what Hirsch revealed. What he revealed, of course, was the uh, destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline by CIA and uh, American Navy personnel. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's really something remarkable to watch as it kind of, I, I, I dare say, unfolds, but it's not really unfolding at all. The, uh, this is, uh, I think what has happened is that this total clampdown on any kind of further investigation or commitment by the U.S. government to reveal what it claims to know. Uh, none of this has happened. It's just total denial and a shutdown on it. And I think the, the reason for it, if you really think about it, is that this is a game changer. I mean, this is a, an undeniable act of war uh, or even terrorism, depending on exactly how you want to define it. And this is done against a major ally, in part, and also against a major power, nuclear power, uh, with which the United States is not actually at war. So how it, uh, do, it, how do um, intelligence agents feel, whether they're in the business of gathering info like you were, or whether in the business of destroying things like Obviously, some parts of the CIA are. How do they feel when they're told uh, they have to destroy an asset that belongs to an ally? Yeah, now that's a good question. I, I, I really kind of wonder how they came up with the people who actually did the job. Because, uh, you know, most people that work for the government basically feel there are certain things that they have to do because they're expected to do them. But this goes way beyond that. And indeed, from uh, Seymour Hersh's coverage, it's quite clear that these downside issues were discussed. It's not exactly like they were hidden. And, and so you had people pulling off this operation who were fully aware of the potential escalation, the potential for this 
turning disastrous in terms of uh, the human race. So there are people in the CIA um, more in in the Phil Giraldi camp, like this is wrong and we shouldn't be doing it, as opposed to the Jack Devine camp. Uh, we'll do whatever the boss says, particularly if it can harm the Russians. Yeah, well, there there certainly is that division. I, I have uh, some friends of mine from the agency that uh, we don't really talk much to each other anymore because they really do they do, really did imbibe the Russophobia uh, that uh, is is motivating a lot of these people. And certainly, I think in, in, if you look at the Biden cabinet, it, it's full of Russophobes. I mean, essentially, they're trying to to make a case that. Russia is responsible for all of this stuff that's gone on, which is 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 completely inaccurate. You uh, have written in this piece that I mentioned a few minutes ago, talk about Russophobia, that we, and I guess you mean the American government, you don't mean you and I and the people watching us now, uh, are, quote, slaves to power brokers who hate Russia. So who are these power brokers that hate Russia, and what is the origin or basis of this hatred? Well, I think the, the hatred is multifaceted. There are people kind of in, in, in our age group who were brought up with the Cold War and with the fact that uh, we, were, we were sold the concept that Russia was uh, manifestly evil. So there are a lot of people, my former agency colleagues are kind of my age, and, and, and some of them certainly I have embraced that view. And then there, you know, there are other issues that arise about uh, Russia. Um, there are many in uh, Jewish organizations in the United States and elsewhere uh, who uh, basically view Russia in a very negative way due to history the, uh, under the czars and this sort of thing. So I think a lot of those people are in power in the State Department and other places right now and who are preferring to see a very negative narrative about Russia. Do you think that uh, one of the goals of American foreign policy with respect to Ukraine, uh, even more so than driving the Russians out of Crimea, which I think is militarily impossible and would result in the use of nuclear weapons, but do you think that one of the Biden administration foreign policy team's goal is to drive Vladimir Putin from office, not knowing who or what would replace him? I think that's precisely uh, one of their major objectives. They, they uh, Certainly the Defense Department has been uh, quite candid, I think, in terms of saying one of the objectives in, in supporting Ukraine is to weaken Russia and to eliminate its uh, ability to interfere in Eastern Europe, so that's a that's an enunciated goal, but I think a lot of the other stuff is basically to get rid of Putin, uh, because again we get back to Putin. Putin, um, one of his first acts when he took over 20 years ago, was to get rid of a lot of the oligarchs, and a lot of the oligarchs were were Jewish, and and so certainly this was a this was and is a motivating uh, factor against Putin. And I, I think they would like to see him go and replace him as they did in Ukraine with somebody who was willing to kowtow to the United States. Well, they don't know who would replace Putin. I mean, if you listen to his predecessor, 
Dmitry Medvedev was the president for a four-year period between Putin's first ter two terms, and then he was prime minister or some nonsense for four years, and then they changed the Russian constitution, which let him succeed himself over and over again. But Medvedev was the uh, nominal legal leader of the government. He's now uh, the vice chair or deputy chair of their equivalent of National Security Council. You know who I'm talking about. Last week said uh, that the Russian forces could uh, go all the way to the Polish border. And it might be necessary or appropriate for them to go into Poland because Russia needs a buffer zone from the West. The reason I say this is if he's serious and if he means that he's a candidate to replace Putin, uh, isn't it better the devil you know who seems rational compared to statements like this than the devil who's threatening your very existence? That's an interesting way of uh, posing it. Uh, yeah, I think I think that is obviously what I would be thinking, and clearly you would be thinking. But we're we're perhaps more rational than anyone sitting in the White House at the moment. And uh, I I suspect that this is the kind of thing where, like they played it in Ukraine, where they got rid of the guy they didn't want, and then we had those telephone conversations with uh, Victoria Nuland, uh, naming different people that 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 we should support, or in fact, we should put into power. That's what the discussion was about. Right. And, and I don't think they think these things through beyond the next step. And I think that's part of the problem. Um, I want to play a clip for you from uh, Admiral uh, Kirby uh, right outside the White House. Uh, I think this is this morning, uh, basically saying, well, I'll let you listen to what he says. You tell me if this makes any sense. How Mr. Zelensky goes about restoring his territorial integrity is a question for him to answer. It's an operation or operations that he must conduct. We're not getting involved in telling him how and when to do that. But we've never recognized Crimea as anything other than a part of Ukraine. Uh, but what they do going forward is going to be for them to decide. We want all of Ukraine's internationally recognized borders to be restored. Isn't that crazy? We want all of Ukraine's international recognized international borders to be uh, restored. Uh, what, what is he talking about? An, an invasion of Crimea? Uh, that's in effect what he is um, giving a green light to. And of course, uh, in this case, uh, his understanding of the history of Crimea would appear to be a bit weak because up until 1956, uh, Crimea was part of Russia. And uh, it had been conquered by Catherine the Great in the uh, 18th century and was always a part of Russia. 300 oh. years it's been a part of Russia. So, so the last uh, 60 years uh, undo that, apparently. And that was a fix done by Khrushchev uh, for political reasons. Uh, he wanted support from one, one uh, power player or another. And then so he made the change. Now, um when uh, Admiral Kirby makes statements like that, are they run past the CIA first before he gets out there and says, you know, we want Ukraine to be liberated to its original borders? No, I don't think so in a case like this. Uh, I rather suspect there were discussions in which there might have been a CIA person in the room sitting at the table 
and and if called upon providing uh, a viewpoint but this is essentially a political decision and um, the what makes this particularly serious is of course if you if you would if you push on this statement hard enough it basically is is very close to being a a declaration of U.S. intervention uh, in support of crime, in support of Ukraine against Russia, a military intervention. It's rather scary. Uh, last uh, week, I asked your former colleague, with whom you agree on nothing, uh, Jack Devine, how, if at all, uh, one could define victory. Uh, in Ukraine, from the Western perspective, it's a very interesting and uh, long, longish answer. But I'd like you to comment on it, Phil. You push until the Russians cease and desist. I don't believe there's peace, right? But I do think you'll reach a point where everyone's using up so much ammunition, so many soldiers have died, that you slow down the pace of war. No one wins. War could go on for a long time, but it will not go on for a long time at this level. And victory is not about Ukraine. It's the geopolitical risk of the world today, and it's the China, Russia, and their allies, the alliance against the West. If Russia fails to accomplish its goal, he will go. And that will change the geopolitical. There's bigger thing at play here than just the current day-to-day fighting. And I think there's a world that's going to be unstable if we allow Putin to go unchallenged. And I think we're doing a very good job of challenging. There's a world that will be unstable if we allow Putin to go unchallenged. We're doing a good job of challenging him. I read that to mean we want to get rid of him, and we want to get Russians out of uh, out of the U- Russian military out of Ukraine. How do you well, read it? Well, I read it that he basically is looking at a, a bipartite world in which there's a winner and a loser, uh, and I think this is a misreading of where um, the West relationship with China and Russia were going before the United States and primarily the UK uh, forced this war to happen. And um, the, the thing is, uh, Russia, uh, Putin has, arg- has argued quite credibly for many years now that there are many different models in the world and everybody should be allowed to have their own model, their own culture, uh, their own interests and all that sort of thing. To me, that's a very reasonable approach and the United States instead has been pushing for a unilateral model, which is governed by this this rule of uh, international law that are laws that are made up as you go along, uh, rules that are made up as you go along. And uh, I prefer the Putin model. Um, President Putin uh, spoke today in Russia to a gathering of FSB uh, officers. Now I guess that's um, that that's their domestic intelligence service FSB. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, because he said to them, and this is an English translation, so there's an American idiom in here: raise your game against the Western agencies. Now, what do you think he's talking about, and why would he issue an order or or a goal like that in in public? That would be like uh, Joe Biden speaking to FBI agents, telling them, you know, there's a lot of Russian spies in northern New Jersey, go get them. 
<laughs> is that true? Well, I don't, well, right now we're covered with eight inches of snow. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> yeah. No, I th I think it's what he's telling them. Raise your game is a very specific kind of uh, invocation in um, in the military and in intelligence circles. It merely means that the Western intelligence service and media are making a lot more noise in, in terms of presenting what they consider their case than the Russians and their friends and sources have been doing to counter that. I think that's what he's saying. How active is the CIA physically on the ground? Maybe they don't do the spying on the ground. I don't know. Maybe it's all done electronically these days. How active is the CIA in Russia? That's a good question. Uh, CIA has always had some um, human sources in Russia that it has worked very hard to maintain contact with. I would suspect that that's still the case, although I would also suspect that the, the numbers of these people and the ability to meet them on a regular basis has probably been greatly eroded. Um, but yeah, you get the best intelligence uh, just, you know, think in terms of your own profession. You get the best information and you get the best intelligence if you're face-to-face -face and one question can lead to another question and to another response and then right. to another question. That's right. how it works to get good intelligence. Let me go back before I let you go to uh, Cy Hirsch. Uh, is it likely that Russian intelligence knew what the CIA and the Navy were up to before... Uh, President Biden gave the order to uh, to blow to blow up. You know, they they pack, according to Cy Hirsch, they packed the explosives in June. He gave the order to blow it up in uh, September. They had to concoct some excuses to what they were doing in the water in September. But right. the explosives were there for three months. Question, is it likely Russian intelligence was aware that the explosives were there for three months? I don't think so. And the reason why I don't think so is because there would have been proactive things that the Russians could have done to maybe prevent what occurred. Uh, they could have leaked stories about what was there on the seabed. They could have uh, incurred you know, the, the water there was what 300 feet deep where the explosives were planted, I think. So the, the fact is they could have even invited people to go journalists to go down and take a look. There were, there were a lot of proactive things that they could have done to prevent it, and they didn't do it. So I rather suspect, no, they didn't know. But once uh, the explosion was detonated and the uh, uh, environmental catastrophe and economic catastrophe was immediately apparent, did Russian intel know that it was us? That it was, the, no, I hate to say us, you and I had nothing to do with it. It was that that it was it was the United States government it was the Biden administration it was the CIA well, and the Navy. They they might not have had evidence that would stand up in court, but nevertheless they would have known this was the only available perpetrator, the only the only entity that had both the motive and the capability to do it. Uh, so I think they they knew for sure uh, who did it, but the question was of course you know. Did we, you know, apart from ruins of, a, of, of pipelines on the seabed, 
and, and possibly ability to reconstruct how it was done mechanically, they, they really didn't have what kind of proof they could use to go to the UN or go to uh, mainstream media. Got it. Got it. Phil Giraldi, always a pleasure. Your wealth house of uh, a storehouse of knowledge. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. Judge Napolitano for judging freedom.